Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. <laughs> um, man, it is so good to be with you guys tonight. So cool to see you. And, um, you know, I, I was born in 85, so I, was, I came late to the party with songs like that. And so growing up, all I thought the lyrics to that song was, wow, that's about it. And so, so in preparation to kick off this series, we were very intentional about what song would perfectly encap- encapsulate what we wanted to get across. Funnily enough, did you know that this song is all about, you know, a couple who are experiencing in their broader life difficult times, and so they decide to hang on to each other. And things might be bad, but they're going to be good. And they recognize their deep need for God, thus living on a prayer. And I was like, that's like the perfect series to actually talk about dating, mating, and relating, okay? There's a whole lot that's out of our control right now, but how important it is that we double down on our relationships, those that are important to us, particularly we're going to kind of lean into a bit of our romantic relationships and recognizing our deep need for God. So pumped to begin this. If this is your first time here, my name is Jono. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and it's super cool to have you here. And of course, uh, big Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. We think you guys are absolutely awesome. Thank you for being our dads. Thank you for leading the way in so many areas. We love you. We think you are awesome. Um, we just, uh, Chloe and I just, you know, after almost four years of, uh, of an adventure, we got, you know, the other week we finally got to move into our brand new home, which we're super excited about. And at the start of the year, I brought my four-year-old daughter for her birthday uh, like a, a mini, well, it was massive for a toy, but it was like a mini kitchen. And, uh, and her birthday was in January, and we said, look, we're going we're gonna to wait until we move into the new house uh, before we put it together. And to her credit, she waited like eight months, super patient. And so, you know, we had three and a half years of boxes just stacked up, ready to unpack. We had lawns and gardens and you name it, like to get a, a new house ready to move into. But the first thing she was like, nah, new house, you will do the kitchen now. So I'm like, all right, I'll do the kitchen. And so, you know, you know, bring out, it's, it's, you know, it's he- I couldn't believe it was a toy. It felt like the real deal. It was so heavy. It's heavier than an Ikea furniture, right? And so you have to get out like, uh, I, I tore my fingers apart using Alan's keys. And so I'm there on the floor putting together this kitchen, going, you know, this is what a dad does, you know, trying to be a good dad. And uh, kind of thinking I'm all that, right? You know, how tough it is. You know, your kid's always asking for things, but, you know, surely go out of it. Next minute, I find myself giving my dad a call going, Dad, I need to lay turf down. We've got like 100 square meters of turf. So dad's over there giving me a heap of his time. My father-in-law comes and gives heaps of his time to help in other areas of the house. And it dawned on me, you never graduate from being a dad. And no matter how old your kids are, we just want to say, Dad, thank you so much. for uh, You might, you know, live up to these stereotypes or not, but we just think you're awesome. And uh, I really want to honor you, dads, here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, yeah, again, you guys are awesome. Okay, so um, I'm just going to put it straight out there. These are like classic Father's Day at church, like things, you know, motorbike, um, barbecue, <laughs> telly, I guess, couch and telly. Um, I take issue with this. I'm actually a bit personally offended about these, you know, it's classic, like, stereotype. It's Father's Day. Um, and so we've got to like do you know these kinds of these kinds of items. Tell me why I take issue with it because um, when I was like younger growing up, and I was trying to get my bearings when I was becoming a young adult and trying to figure out what it was to be like a man and how to be masculine. And this was no one's fault other than my own. I had this like one-dimensional view of what masculinity would look like, and it was this very much this idea of okay, you've got to have the right kind of hobbies. You need to know how to ride one of those. 
and you need to know how to cook a steak. I still don't know how to cook a steak well. I'm so sorry, darling. I'm still trying to figure that out. I even bought a Weber and thought that would fix it. It hasn't. It just has exposed my horribleness of, of cooking. But um, so I was about 18 and trying to get my head around, what, you know, what does it mean to be a man? And so, and again, this was no one's fault, but I'd kind of bought into this, call it cultural, call it societal image, a one-dimensional picture or mold of what a man should look like. Now, Replace it with man, woman, you know, male, female, masculine, feminine. I'm going to use terms interchangeably tonight like society and culture and the world, but they'll be interchangeable to speak of things that are like what you glean off our society, what you glean off living life, right? So they're not, I guess, they're they're catch-all terms. I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. But I quickly learned that there is, a, I guess, this mold that, and again, it was no one's fault. There was like I bought into and I had to like, to be a man, I had to kind of bind to some of this. And so a great opportunity came up in my life where I was like, I can learn this stuff. And it was my eldest brother, Ashley's Bucks weekend. And me and my brothers and my dad and some of our mates, we went uh, out back for a few nights camping and hunting and motorbike riding. And there's even a picture here. This is from a very a long time ago before there was actual color photographs. Um, and I, <laughs> there's me and my brothers and one of our mates. I promise you we weren't posing there. We're just sitting around having a yarn, and my dad happened to take a picture like that. We were not posing whatsoever. But so I was like, okay, this is the trip. I'm going to learn this stuff. So my brother had a CR125. I say that if I'm chatting to someone who knows this thing about motorbikes, I bring up CR125. I don't know what a CR125 is. But you just say that, oh, yeah, cool. I'm like, yeah. Um, I had the biggest stack of my life. Just want to put it out there. It was was absolutely horrible. Um, You know, went hunting for the first time. We went, what's called shooting the road on the back of a ute with a spotlight. Got my first kill. And part of my soul died like a horcrux. I felt like, did I just drop a Harry Potter reference in church? Um, I use that as a bad example. Um, So part of me was like, I can't believe I just took an innocent life for fun, you know, but got to do it, you know. And so, you know, had this whole weekend where I experienced all these things. And I had a, it was an absolute ball. Like, it was a great weekend. And a whole lot of the stuff, I, you know, I enjoy and the great hobbies. But I kind of felt a little, this wasn't me. And if this is what, like, masculinity is supposed to be in manhood, I was in trouble. Because, like, this isn't, this isn't my jam. I don't kind of fit this mold. And, again, this was no one else's problems other than my own. I was growing and maturing. And I guess I cared immensely about how I thought people would view my life. And in this moment, we're trying to figure this out. I am so grateful for the grace of God because I learned something profound. And it's where I want to begin this series about mating, dating, and relationship and relating. When it comes to our self-worth, and the thing I've learned about self-worth, and I'm sure you have as well, is that our self-worth, it must come from how we are received by God rather than how we are perceived by others. And if we're not careful, we could fall into a temptation and a trap whereby we spend our lives striving for the approval of others and caring immensely too much about how other people perceive us and view us and get our worth from that rather than recognizing you already have approval from your heavenly Father. Now, here's the thing. It's super, it is important in many regards how we are viewed by people because how you're viewed by others will immensely influence your influence. It will impact whether or not you can make a difference in people's lives. And it is true psychologically as well that we find, we find maturity, we find our place in life, we find identity much by gleaning off the, our community and the society around us. But we must never get our worth from simply trying to get the approval 
of other people. And when Jesus, um, when Jesus lived and taught and ultimately died and was resurrected, he began a whole new way of people being able to discover their self-worth. And so in the first century, as Christianity began to spread around the world and more and more people started following the teachings of Jesus and started to follow Jesus and had their lives transformed by His Spirit, um, this whole idea of where people got their identity and their self-worth from became, well, the game radically changed. And one of the uh, people that God leveraged to help kind of bring this understanding of the difference that following Jesus would make was the Apostle Paul. And if you're familiar with Paul, he wrote about two-thirds of our New Testament, wrote a whole stack of letters that are included in there. And one of his letters we're going to look at tonight was written to the Christians in Colossae. And to understand the context, this is a young church that Paul planted. He hadn't visited for a while. And news came back to him that not only were they still following Jesus, but they were allowing a lot of their culture to impact how they viewed themselves. And so they were kind of doing this like blend, this mix and match. Some, you know, some parts of their life, they allowed Christianity to influence, but they'd also allow some of the philosophy and the culture and the ethos and ethics of their society to kind of also impact how they viewed their life and viewed their worth. And so he heard about this, so he wrote a letter to encourage them in their faith. And this is where we're going to start in our text tonight. So this is from his letter to the Colossians. He writes, In Christ... All the fullness of the deity, and that term deity refers to the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. To fullness. Now, the original word we got from Greek, they were able to get the word fullness. It can be used interchangeably with the word to be complete. So in other words, he's saying, in Christ, you are complete. And as much as Jesus was enough to be able to embody the full expression of who God was, Jesus is more than enough to fulfill who you are called to be. And so Paul writes saying, all right, you need to know with your life, you are complete. You are, you are, you can discover fullness in Jesus. Now, if you've ever watched any kind of, you know, rom-com, romantic comedy, or you've read anything, or, you know, half of, you know, storylines and TV shows when it comes to relationships, you'll often hear this idea of someone saying to another person, you complete me, right? And you, you, kind of, you, you absolutely complete my life. Here's the thing. That's rubbish. No one can complete you other than the one who created you. And one of the big issues when it comes to relationships, particularly from the romantic persuasions, is that we can often be projecting our need for fullness and our need for completion in other people when it is freely offered to you through Jesus Christ. And so Paul's writing, do you understand that in Jesus, you are complete. Your life can know fullness. And here's the thing. If this is true, if we really can find completeness in Christ, then the implications for our self-worth here is absolutely massive. And before we talk about how we are to relate romantically with other people and engage with other people in the different forms of relationships, it is super important that we wrestle with first and foremost where our completeness and where our fullness in our lives come from. And so I want to ask you a question tonight. I want you to answer honestly in your own heart. What would you say has been the one common denominator in every single one of your romantic relationships? What has been the one common denominator in every single one of your singleness conundrums? And what has been the one common denominator in every one of your sexual frustrations? What's been the number one common denominator? And you're probably thinking the right answer. It's you. 
You have been the ever-present person that has been in every single one of your relationship tensions or your singleness conundrums or sexual frustrations. And as much as there is a ton to discuss as it comes to how we engage with people in our world through various, various expressions of relationships, you and I are the ever-present person in every single one of them. And so before we can talk about doing right by the other person and honoring the other, I want to talk about honoring the person in the mirror. I want to talk about honoring the image of God that is inside of you. Now make no mistake about it. You are created in the image of God. You're not created in the image of culture. You are created in the image of God. You're not created in the image of the world. You're created in God's image. And wrestling with this truth will have a radical impact, not only how we do our relationships, but also how we do singleness. And let me explain how this breaks down on a practical level, okay? If you fall for that idea, I guess it's often seen, again, as I mentioned, entertainment, that another person has to complete me, right? You will run around expecting another person to fulfill those real parts of your life that are there, but were designed to be fulfilled by your Creator. And when you lack getting it from Jesus and finding your fulfillment in Jesus, you'll find yourself putting an expectation on another person and you'll be requiring of them to do something that they do not have the capacity to do. Now, if you're somebody who's not a Christian here, and so hearing these terms, you know, finding fullness in Christ and being complete in Christ, if that is just such a, just a, a theory that just is not making sense for you, I'm beginning with broad terms, and as I go further tonight, I'll kind of bring it down to a point. So hang with me for a moment. But if we don't first wrestle with this idea that our completeness is in Christ, that He completes me and He fulfills me, I'll always be projecting that need onto another person. And at the same token, if you're a single person here, this is, has massive ramifications for how you do singleness. Because again, if you, I guess, lean into the persuasion that you need another person to fulfill you and to make you complete, you are bypassing an incredible promise that your Heavenly Father has already given you through Jesus, that you are complete in Jesus. And so let me tell you, okay, if you're looking for a romantic relationship and you have someone come along and they make the statement to you, oh my gosh, you complete me. My advice to you is run for the hills, okay, because they're going to be asking far more of you than you're ever able to give, okay. But Christ, He is more than able to be able to fulfill your life, to complete those areas of your life that are real. And I want to make just a, a brief mention for those of you that are single here. And, you know, and I take ownership of this. We don't talk and affirm this season of life enough, okay? And this is, a, this is something that is super important. If we can wrestle with this idea of finding fulfillment in Christ before you have another person depending on your completeness, this is a super healthy thing to do. And so I want to remind you that before, you're, before you have the opportunity to engage in a relationship with another person, you have the opportunity to deepen and to grow in your fullness and your completeness and your wholeness that comes through Jesus Christ. Being single is not a sickness. Being single is not a dysfunction. And you don't have to wait for another person to, to affirm you to say that you are finally complete and you are fulfilled in life. You can have it through Jesus Christ. And I'm not for a moment diminishing our deeply held need for relationships. And I, to be honest, uh, you know, for those going through singleness or maybe you've lost a relationship, man, there can be a whole lot of pain in that and a whole lot of disappointment. I acknowledge that. I'm by no extent trying to diminish that whatsoever. But I want to remind you that your fulfillment and your completeness was never designed to come from another person. It was designed to come through Jesus Christ. 
And no doubt about it, God will leverage human relationships to bring fulfillment to your life, but that's what they are. They're a resource. They are not the source. The source is your creator, and you can know completeness in Jesus Christ. And so, this is all good, okay, cool, I can be complete, I can be whole, I can be fulfilled in Christ, and my self-worth comes from how I'm received by God. Well, how do we receive that kind of affirmation and self-worth from God? Paul goes on in his passage here and kind of breaks it down a little for us. Here's what he says next. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and if you're someone who's not a Christian here and that word has just kind of caught your attention, it's a spiritual euphemism, okay, for something that happens when you trust Jesus. It's like a part of you that you trusted in your own ability or your flesh has been cut off, all right? So he's not referring to an actual surgical procedure, just in case you're freaking out and you're about to head out the back door, okay? So it's okay. But it's, it's a spiritual euphemism, okay? You were dead. You were dead spiritually and you're in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive. Now think of these words, right? This is a... He's finding the most robust words imaginable to explain what happens when you find your completeness in Christ. It's like you go from being dead to being alive. You say, God made you alive with Christ. And he goes on. He says in the next verse, He forgave us how many of our sins? All of them. Ponder that, would you, for a moment. All your sins. Every one of them. He forgave them all. It shows not the smallness of your sin, but the largeness of God's love. He forgave them all. If you ever find yourself thinking that you've done far too much wrong and you've made far too many mistakes in your life, all of it pales in comparison and is overshadowed by the brightness of the glory of God shown through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your life. This is what Paul is trying to say here. He's like, he forgave us all our sins. Notice this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And again, this is, he's using language that would make sense to the common man, but to explain a, a spiritual principle here, that because of your mistakes, because of your sin, mankind has fallen and you are in debt to God. But luckily for you, God paid the debt that you would never able, be able to pay. This is what Jesus did for us. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. If you want to know how much you were worth, this is how much you were worth. That your heavenly Father loves you even in the middle of your worst mistakes. And Paul uses the words here, those sins that condemn us. Even in the middle of that, God affirms you, God loves you, God sees you. And He proved it, not just through rhetoric or emotion, but through the greatest act of sacrificial love ever known to mankind. That is how much you're worth. And so when we talk about getting your self-worth and getting your identity from how you've been approved from God, this is what Paul's saying. Do you realize that the Creator of heaven and earth values you so highly that He gave His life for you. Try and see someone else would ever give near as much as what your heavenly Father has given for you. That is how much you are worth. So Paul's coming across here. Do you realize what has been done for you to highlight just how much you are worth? And if this is true, if Christianity is true, then the implications for this and how it affects our relationships with others is monumental. Because, isn't this true, our self-worth impacts how we inevitably love others. Your self-worth will always make a huge impact on your relationships 
around you, which is what we want to talk about in this series. I know last week, Dave Adamson, as he finished our series, He Turned Up the Noise, he, he expanded on the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus said, listen, you are to love others as you love yourself. In other words, the measure of love that we're supposed to have for our neighbors is the love that we are supposed to have for ourselves. This idea of recognizing, I am so loved. And I might not feel like I'm lovable, but I'm unmistakably loved and approved and accepted by my Heavenly Father. But here's where the tension comes in. We live in a world that doesn't affirm us the same way. And we live in a culture that doesn't just receive you as you are. There's like a mold and there's a fit and you've got to live up to a certain image and idea. Now, I'm not saying all of those things are outright evil and wrong, but a lot of them certainly aren't very helpful if you're getting your self-worth from trying to fit an image. And no doubt, this has always been a tension, but I would say due to the rise of dynamics such as social media, where we have access to people's lives and their worlds more than ever before, there is a greater temptation, I would argue, where our self-worth can now be measured using what I'd call a secular yardstick for what has already been divinely affirmed about your life through Jesus Christ. And now we can find ourselves falling the temptation of getting our self-worth by measuring our success compared to other people, maybe our shape or our size, the circles that we walk in, or even our offspring. And this is the temptation that exists in our culture, our society, our world. And it can radically impact our self-worth, which will ultimately radically impact how we do relationships. And so, Paul recognizing this tension, as much as it's awesome and he's reminding them, listen, you're valued in the eyes of your heavenly Father. God gave Jesus for you. That's how much you're worth. He prefaced all of this encouragement by giving a warning. So we're going to rewind a couple of verses to verse 8. And here's how he starts this conversation. He says, I want you to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So I understand the context, okay, this is Colossae, not only was it in the Roman Empire, which was the introduction of these rigorous and rigid Roman laws, but it was a Hellenistic society, which meant it was incredibly impacted by Greek culture. And one of the things that set Greek culture apart from the rest was their ways of philosophical reasoning and argument and ideals, which set a huge basis for what we now widely as Western civilization. And so seeing Western civilization begin to grow this way, and then alongside of it, Christian revelation of the innate worth of the human, Paul recognizes these two things were rising like together. And so he gives a warning. He's saying, okay, you understand, right? You, you have things like philosophy, and he uses this term like human tradition, basic principles of the world. He goes, be careful that these things, and he uses this term at the top there, be careful that these things don't take you captive. He wasn't saying you can ignore this. You know, you're a human being, you have breath in your lungs, you live in the real world. <laughs> and, and I will never be the kind of person that says, all right, if you're a Jesus follower here, escape to a convent or a monastery and disappear from the world. Absolutely not, right? Called to be a light to the world. But here you are in the middle of a world which has its philosophy and human traditions and basic principles, but he gives a warning. As much as you can glean off this stuff, live with this stuff, incorporate things that might be helpful about pop culture and the society you live in, he says, be careful that these don't take you captive. And he gives a warning about the values of our culture and our society. And he says, don't let it own you. 
Don't let it shape your character and don't let it shape your confidence. In other words, he's saying this, earthly expectations will be a trap for your life, but heavenly approval will be the most liberating thing you could ever experience. And if you spend your whole life trying to fit what society through its philosophy and its basic principles and its tradition says, you need to fit this mold and your self-worth comes from your skills and your talents and your ability and your resources and your things and your stuff, the stuff you've got and how many followers you've got, whatever it might be. If that's where you're getting your self-worth from, Paul says, man, that is going to trap you. But when you realize, man, you have already been received by the affirmation of your heavenly Father, it is one of the most liberating experiences you can ever have for your self-worth. So allow Christ's approval of you to set the tone for your self-worth. And ultimately, it will shape the way that we date, that we mate, and that we relate. So when Chloe and I were pre-marriage, we were just friends and we were good friends and we, we hung out a lot. We served uh, in church together. In fact, one of the first things we did as friends was we um, cooked pancakes for Red Frogs at the university every single Wednesday. And so we were building, you know, just friends and that vibe. Um, we were in our early 20s and Chloe grew up in you know, a beautiful Christian home. But when she got to like her early 20s, she really had her own, I guess, grown up adult moment where God just, the lights came on for her. And she's like, I am all in and I am following Jesus with my life. And so it was really cool for me as a close friend of her, seeing her faith grow and her faith deepen. And not only did her faith grow, but as her faith grew, so did her self-confidence and her self-worth. And it was super cool as a friend seeing Chloe grow in her life, in her maturity, and in her confidence. And then hearing her share in her own words how much her faith in Jesus caused her to feel confident about who she was. And she started saying things like, which caught my attention, saying, you know what? I do not need a relationship to affirm me or to give me my self-worth. I have everything I need in God. And I'm there saying, this is, this is so attractive, right? This was so good. And I was, but it was just, it was amazing to see this girl growing in her faith. And so I was like, there it is to, for a real world experience. Here was this girl growing in her faith, but then also growing in her self-worth. The problem was, I was like, if I don't make my move soon, she's going to bolt and just date Jesus forever and never give me a look. So, and I heard, I caught wind that she was going to friend dump me because she's like, I don't want some guy stringing me along as a friend if he's not going to make a move. And I caught wind of this. And so I got in there so quick. We were married three weeks later. And there you go. So that's how we do it in church. Joking. It's a couple of years to get it all right and sorted. Um, but, you know, I wanted to. <clears throat> Anyways. So again, we must get our self-worth from how we're received by God, not how we're perceived by others. Or to put it another way, we must get our self-worth from heaven, not from earth. And every time you find yourself doubting yourself, and every time you find yourself questioning your value or your worth, and it can happen a myriad of ways. If you've ever lost a job, it can rattle you. If you've ever been dumped before, a relationship's fallen apart. It's like, it can hammer your self-worth and self-confidence. If you've ever experienced big disappointment, man, it can shake you to the core. If you've ever been immensely reprimanded by someone who you hold in high esteem, man, these things can rattle you. And here's the thing. If you find yourself questioning your identity, your completeness, I want you to remember where you get it from. 
And I want you to remember where your self-worth comes from. And to use words that have been used for 2,000 years, let's look at what Paul writes about this. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ, is what we're just referring to, that God gave his life for you, you were dead, now you're alive. Since then, you're in that place. I want you to set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He goes on. He says, I want you to set your minds. So first it was set your hearts, set your minds on things above, not on, remember we've been using this term all night, earthly things. Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the next time you're feeling down, and maybe your self-worth right now has taken a huge hit recently, and your confidence has been smashed and you're feeling discouraged, or maybe you're a little unsure of who you are, Paul's encouragement to you and my encouragement to you is to set your minds and set your hearts towards heaven where Christ is. In other words, look up. And you don't need to look far to be tempted to fit, again, a mold, an image, to see where you don't measure up, where you don't have enough, where you, I mean, come on, you're, you're, you're smart and you live life, you get this. But Paul gives an encouragement to say, come on, you're worth so much. And one of the greatest reminders about where you get your self-worth from is to set your minds and set your hearts on Christ, to look up. Now you might ask, well, it sounds great. How exactly do I do that? Well, the good news is you're doing it right now. Every time you make a decision to gather in community, you're reminding yourself to look up where your hope comes from, where your identity comes from. Every time you engage in singing songs, whether it's in a church environment or in your car or at home, you're looking up, you're like, that's right. Man, God is faithful. He is for me. Every time you open your scriptures, it's a reminder of what God has said about your life and who you are and how He's designed you to be and how good He is. Every time you engage in prayer, you're straight away connecting with your Creator. And it's looking up. It's looking off earthly things and looking towards where Christ is. And it is a reminder. And I am telling you, the more you can make this a habit and a discipline in your life to pause and look up, you're reminded where your self-worth comes from. Not from the approval of men, but from the affirmation that you already have from your heavenly Father. <clears throat> the reason this is so important is because whatever we inevitably set our minds and our hearts on will eventually set everything else about us. What you dwell on, what you think about regularly, what you meditate about, what you celebrate most, isn't this true? It sets the tone for every other part of your life. But for us, for those who decide to trust Jesus with your life, and you learn that I am complete in Christ. What an incredible foundation for your life it is. Now, Paul's like bringing this, he's going somewhere with this, right? And he's about to take <clears throat> a very practical turn. But he has to lay this foundation first to say, you're complete in Christ. You're, you have your fullness in Jesus. Look up. He's always there for you. He's going to remind you what you are. But then it's from this platform of completeness and fullness, of identity and confidence, that he then gets super practical about addressing you. You remember the you that is the common denominator in every single relationship tension or singleness conundrum or sexual temptation or frustration you've ever had? Like you're the passenger in every single one of those experiences that you've had. 
Now he addresses the you. And he gets super practical about what to do with this. And here's what he says. He says, I want you to put to death. Again, you could not find stronger language, okay? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. There's that term again, right? That part of you that wants to fit a mold of modern day philosophy and ideology and culture, right? He goes, put it to death. And he lists some of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, he doesn't give a full exhaustive list, but he, he, he goes there and he keeps listing more over the next few verses, starts like listing them off. We'll jump in at verse 8. And he continues by saying this. So he started with, you know, kill this part of your life. And so he has to find another descriptive word. So he says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So he's laying this foundation, okay? He's saying, okay, you're complete in Christ. You've got your wholeness. You don't feel this, you're, you're avoiding the temptation of having to fit the mold of where society says your self-worth and your value can come from. You've now discovered it in Christ. He says, from that position, before you go out chasing another who, we're looking at you. And you've got to put to death some of these things that are, if you don't put to death, they'll put to death your potential and any relationship you want to engage in. In other words, he's saying this, the biggest killer of our relationships and our potential are often things that we can kill. Things that will gnaw away at healthy romantic relationships, marriage when you're dating, things that gnaw away at your potential when you're single, when you're dreaming about your future, things that gnaw away at these are actually things that are within your grasp to address. Yes, there are definitely parts of, you know, that are outside of your control. There's timing, there's other people's free choice, there's other people's mistakes, there's, you know, maybe your family background or things you've had to address from your life. But there's still a large list, and the Apostle Paul touches on a whole lot that we all experience, saying these are within your power to address. And before they gnaw away and kill any potential in your life or kill any potential relationship, you have to make a decision to use the Bible's words, kill them, put them to death. And if you're not a Christian here and you see a list like that and go, oh, I knew it, I knew there was a catch to this. I have to do all this stuff before I get in on all this being complete in Christ. No, no, no. Don't get it the wrong way around. Paul is giving this affirmation to people who have found their completeness in Christ, knowing that they are affirmed as they are. Remember, He died for you and He paid the price for all your sin. And it's from that completeness that He goes, now, let's talk about those sins. And let's address those sins and let's put them to death. And the strongest footing we can have to do any of that is to know that our self-worth is grounded in Jesus. So after going super practical, Paul lands it in one of the most beautiful pictures that you will find in this letter. He puts it this way. He says, so therefore do not lie to another since you have, and notice this language, it's like an imagery he gives, okay? He says, you've, you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. So he uses these two ideas, okay? An old self, and a new self. This old self, which he refers to as like your practices, okay? But then your new self, which is attached to your knowledge and what you know about the image of your Creator. So he's saying you're growing to know what God is like more. You're growing to know what the image of your Creator is like. In other words, you've learned what God is now like. The image of God, remember we read right at the beginning, is fulfilled in Christ. 
In other words, the more you get to know what Christ is like, you understand what the image of God is. And the more you understand the image of God, who is Christ, the more you get a clear image of who you are. The more you recognize that God is for you and that God affirms you, the more you get a true image of what you are like and your identity. When you realize the completeness that Christ offers, you recognize that you can have your completeness in your life too. And here's the point. He's talking about this old self versus new self. Our old self is set by what we do. Okay, he's talking about all these practices. So our old self is designed by your mold, your fit, your talents, your hobbies, the ways you want to kind of measure to other people and find success. Your old self is determined by what we do. But our new self, it is put on by what we know. And the more you know about what God is like, and the more you know about the riches of what God has for you in Christ Jesus, and to recognize the worth and value that you have in your heavenly Father, the incredible self-worth that you begin to grow in your own life. And if the words of Paul are anything to go by, it's the equivalent of being having an old self and then having a new self. This is the enormity of the self-worth we find in Christ. And so my point is this. As you begin to trust Jesus with your life more and more, and recognize, recognize that there's temptation in our, you know, in the, in the, the world and culture and society to kind of make us fit a form, and I need to kind of measure up here or measure up there to have my self worth. You go, my self worth is in Jesus Christ, and you begin to get a clear picture of what Christ is like. Here's the incredible thing that happens: our self worth will grow dearer and dearer when our image of God will grow clearer. And I want to encourage you with all your heart to trust Jesus with your self-worth. And the more you see what God is like and His love and value towards you, the more your self-worth will grow deeper and deeper. Now you might ask, well, what does this have to do with mating and dating and relating? We are going to launch straight into that next week as part two of this series. So Heavenly Father, I am super grateful for your affirmation of every person here and your love for people. And I'm just conscious tonight, Lord, that maybe for a whole lot of them, a whole lot of us, maybe our self-worth or our confidence has taken a hit, has, maybe we're experiencing some form of discouragement. Perhaps we've experienced a failure or a rejection by someone. I'm praying tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would remind people of their self-worth, that you are for them, that they are approved already. May those who have never known this before, may tonight in their hearts, they be almost for the first time as if knowing that they are complete in you. And may we all grow in our knowledge of Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.